I'm going to warn you, I'm going to go dark and heavy first, but I figured if I said that, you wouldn't be shocked when I started. So, that being said, as all of us are aware, but we're going to look into this greater this morning, sin is a very dark, powerful force that caused, uh, obviously, what we've seen so far in Scripture, the wisest, noblest, and courageous of people to do the most egregious and heinous acts. And you would think that someone who was so wise and so powerful wouldn't be influenced by this, but it is clear that sin has the power to blind humanity at staggering levels. What would seem plainly good and pure, someone like Christ can be rejected and turned into a reason to kill and destroy. And this capacity to distort purity and destroy lives within every single person on the planet. It's a part of our nature, as we've been told. This capacity to distort turns things that are pure and good and lovely into something that is evil. That is not anything that you have to learn. I've learned this four times over. I have four children, and I've never taught them how to be evil. But in their own little way, they are. It doesn't have to be unleashed in us. It typically has to be tamped down because it sits brewing, gaining strength each and every day the longer we live. Sin eats at the very core of our being as we've learned. It turns us against a holy and righteous God and only a God who is only pure and lovely. Sin transforms all that is pure into an obstacle to be removed from its path. When faced with a pure and righteous holy God, what sin causes within us is not to be in awe, but it causes us to reject it and to turn away from it because we cannot see its beauty because we're blinded by our own selfishness and our own pride. Now, no one ever would want to admit that they have this monster living inside of them, a monster that must be fed or else it will starve us to death. So we feed it. We feed this monster inside of us with lust and pride and anger and vengeance and envy. It screams at us when we attempt to suppress it. It tells us that we are not able to survive unless we feed it. It torments us night and day until we finally give in and allow it to control our thoughts and our actions. And this beast is our sinful flesh. You feel it, I feel it, it haunts us every day. We have lived our entire lives. And because of this, we lose sight of how it has infected us because we've lived so long with it. All of our decisions are influenced by this beast. All of our desires are turned toward feeding its passions. All of our intentions are twisted, deceiving, lying, conniving to gain just a little bit more time to feed it. We often even fantasize, thinking it doesn't really live within us. We pretend in front of others as if we have freedom from its power, from its cage that it holds us in. We even convince others how they too can live free from the monster, even though themselves have not been freed from it. Each night we know. As we lay in darkness, we know the darkness that rages inside of us. We attempt to hide it. 
And we tempt to medicate it through alcohol, entertainment, sex, drugs, money, or even fame. But nothing seems to drive the beast away. It is killing us bit by bit, and one day it will end us according to Scripture. Now I know some of you are feeling that this is dark and disturbing. But unfortunately, being diagnosed is never a pleasant moment in a doctor's office. We always hope for the best outcome. But in this case, the worst you fear is the reality according to the diagnosis of Scripture. This morning from John 11, we are going to see the darkness of this beast that rages inside all of us. Sin is powerful and has and will continue to destroy all that is good and is pure in the world. And until you see that that sin lives in you, you won't understand John and what John is doing. And before we pick up where we left off in our story in John 11, I want to ask you one simple question in connection to what I just told you. Have you ever stopped and asked, what caused people to kill Jesus? We all know his death. We all celebrate his benefits. Every week we take a remembrance, a sacrament to signify his death. But why did people kill Jesus? Well, this morning from John 11, we will answer this question. And to help us along the way, I will make the connection for you now for the story will make a little bit more sense down the road. This beast that rages inside of you now is the beast that killed Jesus. Why did people kill Jesus? Because of the beast that lives in you and the beast that lives in them. John is going to show us that the very sin Jesus suffered for on the cross is the sin that put him there. And this beast inside of you has a name that crucified Jesus, and it's called sin. And I truly pray that none of us miss the power and the beauty of John's letter this morning. And as he brings us to a climactic point in his narrative, I, I think the entire story of Jesus is coming to a head here. And John has um, masterfully crafted the narrative and the language so that we would come to this breathtaking reveal and I think it's one of the most breathtaking reveals in all of Scripture. You know, I preach every single Sunday. And almost every time I preach, I think it's my favorite sermon and I get excited about it. But today, this is my favorite sermon of all time. And next Sunday will probably be my favorite sermon. But John exposes the beast's power and just how controlling it can be for us this morning. So in order to catch what John is saying, I want to do just a quick review of John 11. So Jesus is told that some very dear family, a very dear family to him is requesting his presence because Mary and Martha and Lazarus, whom Jesus publicly shared his affection with, Lazarus is about to die. Of course, Jesus doesn't go because in his sovereignty and in his knowledge, he knows Lazarus has to die. And so it says out of love, Jesus doesn't go. Of course, Jesus shows up. And the moment he shows up, he does share his affection for Mary and Martha. He shares his affection for Lazarus. But there's this moment in the narrative where Jesus is completely overcome with grief 
and sorrow, and it says so much, multiple times, the agony, the, he saw the suffering, he felt the suffering, he groaned within them, and then it said it drove him to the point where Jesus stood before Lazarus' grave, and he wept. It drove Now, you have to understand, sometimes when we cry, we cry and we weep over sorrow because we don't understand the outcome or or the future. But Jesus did. Jesus stands in front of Lazarus' grave, weeps, knowing he's about to raise him from the grave. So you have to ask yourself, why would Jesus cry knowing he's about to raise him? Well, because the death that killed Lazarus would kill him again. Jesus was only bringing a temporary fix for the sake of an illustration Sin destroys. And Jesus, in his humanity, for those around him, showed just how horrendous sin really is. So the final conclusion of sin is death. And the illusion of this, as we learn later on, is a separation from God. So, of course, Jesus finally raises Lazarus from the grave. And he uses it praying out to God, saying, Lord, I'm not praying this prayer for my sake. I'm publicly praying this prayer so that those around me may see that you have given me this power and that I truly am the Messiah. I am the Savior. Well, Lazarus, four days dead, he smells, which means decomposition, right? He was really dead. He just wasn't in a coma. And he comes forth. And people believe. Wow, he, he really is the Messiah. The, there's, a, there's two crowds here. The crowd who believed, this is an amazing miracle. And then there's a crowd who believed he also raised him from the grave. They never denied that Jesus rose him from the grave. They just denied what he was. So and this is where we pick up the story in John 11. So they have seen You cannot deny this is not a magic trick. This is not an illusion. He didn't somehow have a double. Some who believe and some who don't. And John's going to continue to expose to us why there are two camps. Why are there two people? Look at verse 45. John 11, 45. Many of the Jews, therefore, who had come with Mary and had seen what he did, believed in him. But some of them went to the Pharisees and told them what Jesus had done. So, which is still mind-blowing to me. Man dead, man alive. And they didn't run into the city like the prostitute at the, woman's, at the well ran into the city. You won't believe who I found. They ran into the city and said, you won't believe what Jesus did. He's raising people from the dead. How dare he? I mean, it's ridiculous. You should feel the ridiculousness of it. Why would someone ever do that? John's about to show you why. Remember that beast I was talking about? The beast causes us to take that which is pure and turn it into evil. So the chief priests, verse 47, and the Pharisees gathered the council and said, what do we do for this man performs many signs? It's the way John writes it. It's funny to me. What are we going to do with this guy? He's helping people. He's feeding the poor. He's helping the blind see. How are we going to stop this guy? It's crazy, right? It's just that which is pure and good. They're completely twisted. 48. If we let him go on like this, everyone will believe in him, and the Romans will come and take away both our palace, our place, 
and our nation. Oh, now we see what's going on. It's very subtle what John is doing here. And he will make it plain throughout the rest of his account, but I want to stop and point out so that we can see its full effect as we travel through the rest of John's gospel. Those who do not believe in Jesus, those who rejected him to be God, came together and notice what they're upset about. Verse 47. What are we to do? For this man performs many signs. This is the positive side, right? This is God, I'm sorry, this is Jesus proving he's pure and holy and that he's God. They did not deny his claim and they did not deny his purity. Did you catch this? They are not rightfully con- um, condemning Jesus. They're being exposed to his goodness And what does the Bible say when light exposes darkness? It flees from it. So, what is it that they say in return? What is it that they reject? Instead of bowing before him and offering him praise, this is what they say in return. Verse 48. If we let him go on like this, everyone will believe in him and the Romans will come and take away both our place and our nation what is it that they conclude his power will cause a revolt and we will be left powerless and homeless they believe now jesus made it extremely clear i have not come to establish a kingdom right now they tried to make him king he said no they tried to follow him in the masses and he turned them away They did not understand. Of course, these people were afraid that Jesus was going to come, turn everybody to himself, and of course, they would lose. Now, just so you all to understand here, they lived in Roman captivity at the moment. They were conquered by Rome. What Rome would do is they would conquer a city or they would conquer a culture, but then they would allow that culture to remain in its current authority and current form. It's a lot easier to allow to, to talk to the authorities and say, all right, listen, we're going to give you back your authority, uh, but you need to keep your people in check. We'll let you do that however you want, but the moment you get out of check, we're taking over. Right? It just seems to allow it to be more peaceable. So they're afraid. If this man causes a revolt and he's telling everybody to change the culture, we're going to lose what we have from the Romans, which fast forward down the road 40 years They lost it anyways. Rome took it away from them. We see what happened here. The beast inside of them turned what is pure, the miracles of God that are holy and righteous and true, it turned it into a threat. It's that powerful to stand before God in the flesh, watch him do the most miraculous miracle, and then accuse him of trying to cause a revolt. That's how powerful the beast of sin is. And it's John's point for you to see how ridiculous it is to see God's power and people turn from it. But in the same story, there are those who believed in Jesus. And what makes the difference? What's the difference? Well, throughout John so far, John tells us the difference. It's those who are his sheep. It's those who have been drawn to Jesus by the Father's power. In other words, you and the person rejecting Jesus have the same beast inside of you. The only reason you can look at Jesus and say, yes, he is worthy to be praised, is because the Father 
opened your eyes through what we call the doctrine of regeneration. It means he brought you to life. Blind to sight. Remember the story of the blind man in John 9? He brings the man to sight. It's a whole illustration of those who stand and look at God in the flesh cannot see him because they are blind. So something new lives inside of us, empowering us over the beast to see that which is pure and holy for what it is instead of turning it into something that it's not. So we now have a capacity to see Jesus in a way that those without Christ cannot. So without this power, men are controlled by this beast and their desires are to reject all that is good and pleasing to God. Now Jesus is clearly going to get... in the way of their agenda, power and possession is at stake, so this is what they conclude. By the way, I just want to pause for a moment. Sometimes we read these stories in John 11 and just say, that is so ridiculous that you could stand there, watch the feeding of the 5,000, watch a blind man. And there is a side of us that go, yeah, I'd be with the, I'd be with the disciples on this one. I'm like, yeah, Jesus is like the guy to follow. Why, why can't y'all get on board with this? John's just about to reach in And make sure that you never say that again. You would never compare yourself to those who don't believe because you are the same. Look at verse 49. But one of them, Caiaphas, who was high priest that year, said to them, You know nothing at all, nor do you understand that it is better for you that one man should die for the people, not the whole nation should perish. He did not say this of his own accord. But being high priest that year, he prophesied that Jesus would die for the nation. And not for the nation only, but also to gather into one the children of God who are scattered abroad. So from that day on, they made plans to put him to death. Wait, what just happened here? John just made two massive connections, huge in his narrative. One, men out of their own sinful nature wanted to kill Jesus. He made it very clear. They saw the goodness of Jesus. They saw the purity of Jesus. And in their own desire said, you are going to ruin what we have. We're going to put you to death. And here's the second connection. God in his sovereignty prophesied that Jesus would die by the hands of these men. You see what happened? Caiaphas stands up and says, you don't know anything. And I love John goes, yeah, and he didn't even know what he was saying. You don't know anything. Isn't it better for one man to die so that the whole nation isn't destroyed? He was thinking of the Roman rule. God in his sovereignty spoke through Caiaphas and said, oh, I'm thinking of the eternal rule. So when we think of Christ's death, we often just think of the benefits to his death. But I want you to see what John's about to connect here. Forgiveness of sins is what comes to mind, which is right. Jesus' obedience being transferred to us so that we might stand before God and, and be seen as holy, even though we've never done it. We just sang all of this in Christ alone, and it's, it's wonderful and glorious. But John is giving us something for us to hold on to that makes those benefits that much more special to us. He he is exposing the beast that caused this to be necessary. When John said that Caiaphas prophesied the death of Christ but didn't realize what he was saying, remember that? This is God working to complete the payment of sin. 
But God is doing it in such a way that it makes a direct connection to the original sin that caused the death and to Christ to be necessary. Let me put it this way. It would appear in John's story that the death of Jesus is to take place because these men are worried that Jesus is going to take their power and position of land, right? So you, you, you saw this. Oh, if we don't get control of this man, we lose what we want. He has what we want. We have to take it from him. So God here, this is what John is telling us, is controlling the narrative. How do we know this? Well, it's kind of been this way from the beginning of time, from the beginning of Genesis. And this is how I come to this conclusion. Turn with me real quick to the book of Acts. There's a reason why Caiaphas prophesies. There's a reason why Jesus finds himself at this place and at this time doing these miracles. And it's not till after his death, the apostles bring some clarity. Look at verse 22 of Acts chapter 2. Men of Israel, these are the same men who crucified Jesus. Men of Israel, hear these words. Jesus of Nazareth, a man attested to you by God with mighty works and wonders and signs that God did through him in your midst. As you yourself know, yeah, he's reminding them. This Jesus delivered up according to the definite plan and foreknowledge of God, you crucified and killed by the hands of lawless men. That's the conclusion. (laughs) so who killed jesus the beast with inside of us murdered jesus but the way in which it was done was orchestrated by god did you catch that if you didn't turn to chapter 4 real quick look at chapter 4 verse 27 for truly in this city there were gathered together against your holy servant jesus whom you anointed both herod and pontius pilate along with the gentiles and the people of israel To do whatever your hand and your plan had predestined to take place. So what was going on between Caiaphas and Pontius Pilate and these men was being orchestrated by God. But the question is why? Why was God orchestrating the death of Christ in this way? Well, after the death of Christ, the apostles take the revelation of God and they are going to make an important application for your own heart so that it changes the way that you interact with God. Here's the connection. And that little section of John, here's the connection. God's sovereignty orchestrated Jesus' death in this exact manner for this exact purpose to expose the beast in you. Here's the second connection. God predestined Jesus to die in this exact way because... It is the story of how you and I betrayed God. Here's what crushed me when I noticed what John was doing here, real quick. And what caused Jesus' death. Let me read to you John eleven forty eight 48 again. If we let him go on like this, doing good works, if we let him go on doing this, Everyone will believe in him, and the Romans will come and take him away, both our place and our nation. They wanted what he had, therefore, they wanted to remove him from it so that they would not lose it. 
They were afraid of Jesus, who had only demonstrated... The reason I'm, I'm, I'm making this connection is you have to see it in the next verse we go to. They looked at Jesus in his loving, kindness, goodness. They've only seen that which is pure and kind and gracious. That's all they've ever seen. And they concluded they must get him out of the way. See how dark that is? Now turn with me real quick to Genesis chapter 3. In Genesis 3, there is a story we all know, but may not understand the significance of the reality of it in John 11. So Satan has a simple conversation with Eve, but in this conversation he says something to her that is very important that relates to us in John 11. The serpent asks Eve, why can't you eat of this tree? Why would you be prevented from eating of this tree that's in front of you? And she tells the serpent that if she does, she's going to die. I mean, it's pretty good logic, right? Don't eat, die. I'm good with that. Look at verse 3. I'm sorry, verse 4. But the serpent said to the woman, You will not surely die. First lie recorded in the Bible. For God does not, for, for God knows that when you eat of it, your eyes will be opened, and you will be like God, knowing good and evil. <laughs> did you see it? What did the beast say to the woman? God is keeping something from you. He is preventing you from having what is rightfully yours. What does Eve know of God right now? What does she experience? Goodness, beauty, power, loving kindness. That's all she has ever known of God. She's never had a cross moment Right? And she's convinced it's not enough. What caused her to turn against God? It's very simple. The beast of jealousy and pride. She wanted what God had, and she believed she deserved it. Eve took from the tree because she thought God was going to prevent her from gaining the power and knowledge she wanted. In John's story, What was the driving force behind Jesus' death? Jealousy, pride, and power. Do you see it now? Are you making the connection? God orchestrated all of these events through all of history to drive us down to one moment in history. In the garden, jealousy and pride caused the sin, the beast to come alive. And God takes all of this history of the Bible and orchestrates it down to a moment to where Jesus is going to be put to death. Remember, from this moment, they decided to put Jesus to death. Now, let me make one more connection for you. Eve took from the tree what was forbidden for her to eat. And it is upon what that Christ pays for her sin on a tree. See, the Bible is a story about two trees. Do you think that's just happenstance? Do you think that's just by chance? I think we were just told that God sovereignly decides what will be communicated. He isn't in there trying to fix things as we go as a teacher wrangling little five-year-olds. The angels didn't walk up to God and go, how'd your day go? Oh, man, these humans. No. He sees the fall, 
and wants us to see just how devastating the fall is and takes thousands of years to give us stories of just how horrible. Go read the book of Judges and you tell me the beast inside of you isn't scary. The stories are there. The flood is there. Sodom and Gomorrah is there to remind you just how horrible the beast is. So she she rejected what is pure and holy and and lovely and embraced the devil's lie in the same lie that they put Jesus upon the cross in your place. So when you read your Bible from start to finish, if you miss this connection, you miss the wonder of God's word. I think we take the Bible and instead of seeing this connection... It's a story of redemption. It's a story proving to humanity just how worthless and how powerless and how much of a cage we live in to this beast. That should be your conclusion of the Bible. And the only way we're set free from it is when the beast actually kills Jesus in our place. What does God tell Eve? From you will come one who will crush the head of the beast, of the serpent, and he will bruise his heel. In other words, he has to pay the price in order to fix that which has been broken. Two trees. One where the beast was created, when she ate of the fruit, and passed it down to every single human. The moment she ate, Adam and Eve sinned and fell and gave it to us, and the beast that raged within us is the same beast that put Jesus on the cross. So who killed Jesus? We did. But Jesus said, you didn't take my life. You can't. I'm in control. I laid my life down. John 10. Let me read this to you real quick. This is Paul concluding what the disciples are trying to write here in John about this beast. And you were dead in your trespasses and sins. He's describing the beast in which you once walked following the course of this world, following the prince of the power of the air, this is Satan, the spirit that is now at work in the sons of disobedience. He describes it as a spirit. Remember what I was talking about? How it rages in you, it screams at you, feed me or I'll control you. Among whom we all once lived in the passions of our flesh, carrying out the desires of the body and the mind, and were by nature the children of wrath like the rest of mankind. We screamed out in anger against God and never felt guilty about it. Why? Because we're dead and blind. So the beast in the end is what put Jesus on the cross. It wasn't stupid people who couldn't figure out who Jesus was. We're the smart ones. They're the dumb ones. No, John is saying, all have inherited sin. And the sin of jealousy and pride is what killed Jesus. And you are the ones who hold the jealousy and pride. So John, you should never read John's story and think they, that, as I said in the, in, the, in the moment, you're one of the other crowd. You're not of the other crowd. You are of the ones who are accusing Jesus. And this is his point. This is John's connection. Everyone put in that position without the power of Christ to transform our hearts would put Jesus on the cross because we cannot see that which is pure and that which is good. 
Now, in order for us to be free from this beast, Jesus must first die to set us free. And as we read the rest of the story, we can sit back and watch God reveal his power to overturn what is, that has held us captive for so long since the garden. Now, Jesus very well knew what happened in this council. He wasn't there, but in his sovereignty, he knows. Look at verse 54 of John 11. Jesus, therefore, no longer walked openly among the Jews, but went from there to the region near the wilderness to a town called Ephraim. And there he stayed with his disciples. Now the Passover of the Jews was at hand, and many went up from the country to Jerusalem before the Passover to purify themselves. Now, just a moment, just so you understand. If you don't know what the Passover is, it's that moment in Exodus where the death angel passes over anyone who puts the blood over the door. It's a beautiful picture of the gospel. These people are coming to Passover. Jesus is the Passover lamb. They're so blind by the beast, they're celebrating the Passover lamb while putting the lamb to death. Okay? There is none righteous, my friends. There is none righteous. They were looking for Jesus and saying to one another, as they stood in the temple, what do you think? That he will not come to the feast? Now the chief priests and the Pharisees had given orders that if anyone knew where he was, he should let them know so that they might arrest him. Of course, why do they want to arrest him? Because he's pure. Remember, this is the part in my own, I'll be honest with you, this is the part in my own mind I didn't really quite make the connection. Jesus died on the cross because he healed people. Jesus died on the cross because he fed people. Jesus died on the cross because he was righteous. And sinful beasts don't like righteousness. Why? Because it's exposed as their evil. So in closing, I want to help you make a connection, a final connection here in John's story. We know very well that sin has been conquered. Praise God. We're going to celebrate this in a moment. That we are new creatures. Old has passed away and all of life is new. It's the reason we sit here. And yet, and yet, the beast remains. Well, how do we know this? Because sin has not been fully removed from us yet. We are warned against feeding it. We are warned against letting it go unchecked. We are warned and encouraged to walk by the Spirit so that we what? Not fulfill the lust of the flesh. What John gives to us is the scary reality that you are both alive in Christ and the beast remains. It's a scary reality. So the moment we indulge in sin is a lesson of its reality. To allow it to remain for a little while. Oh, you know, I'm just going to go ahead and I know this is wrong. I know I shouldn't do it. I know I shouldn't indulge. I know I shouldn't feed this side of me. But I'm just going to let it sit there. In John's narrative, the conclusion we should draw is this. The sin that put Jesus on the cross for being good and pure and kind, you're going to go ahead and just let it sit here for a little bit. Great tears that flowed from him, great sweat blots of blood, 
crying out on the cross because he'd been forsaken by the Father. Yeah, you're just going to go ahead and say, yeah, I know. I know there was immense amount of pain that Christ got. But I'm, it's okay. I'm just going to. No, it's not okay. It's a scary thing to allow the beast to go unchecked. It is to see the blood of Christ from his side and believe the lie. This is what I'm trying to point out for you is that the lie. We are so easily deceived. Eve, perfect world, was so easily tempted. Why? Because we are that frail and that weak. This is why every week the elders gather and study and we come and we present the good news that Jesus Christ conquers death. He put his foot on the head of the beast and said, I won. The moment you forget that, that we live by faith looking to the cross, the moment you forget that, you know you have two options. You live in misery or you live what's called the victorious Christian life. You are constantly trying to become a victor over the beast. And you cannot be victorious over the beast. No one can. No one can. You either live by faith, trusting in Jesus Christ and his work, or you live trying to make yourself victorious, and it never, ever works. This is why we believe that the Bible is a story about redemption from beginning to end. To remind us over and over and over, The beast destroys, but Christ is victorious. So as we come to the table this morning, the reason we take the sacrament every single week is because of dependence. (laughs) You know what's interesting? We don't hand out rewards at the end of the service. Good job, here's a sticker. You did well this week. I mean, we are the most down, dirty, horrible religion that exists. All we think about is a man who's been killed every single week. Death, destruction, murder. Why? Because we just know the reality of our own heart. Church, as we take the table this morning, may I remind you, you do not take it to earn. You don't take it to gain. You've heard this a thousand times, but I must remind you, you want to know why? Because you will be tempted to believe the lie this week. The beast inside you will scream. Trust in lust, trust in pride, trust in sex, trust in fame, trust in money. And it's our responsibility to look to the cross and say, how could I ever trust in something that put my Savior to death? This is why we take the table. Amen. Father, we thank you for giving us one more reason to depend upon you. Thank you for John's gospel. In Jesus' name, amen.